Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World Stories podcast. In this month's episode, we'll be looking at careers in physics. I'm Andrew Glester and we'll be talking to some people with celebrated careers in physics about how they got to where they are and how you might develop your career. Physics news and physics stories often focus on the science rather than the people behind it. And it probably won't come as much of a surprise to you to find that physicists are people too, full of the same sorts of motivations and foibles that we all are. So that's why in this podcast, I thought it would be interesting to find what it takes to carve a career in physics. But we don't want to scrimp on the science, so we'll also be talking to one of them about an exciting new discovery using radio telescopes to find the biggest explosion we've ever seen in space. We'll also hear about what can happen in your career if you dare to challenge one of the fundamental theories in physics. All that's to come, but we start with the multi-award winning Claudia de Ram, a professor of theoretical physics at Imperial College London. And her career has taken her around the world. I always kind of wanted to do physics or astrophysics or astronomy, something related to studying the sky. Um, so I did a kind of bachelor, master degree in physics uh, between uh, the Eiffel in Lausanne and then Paris. Then I went for a PhD in Cambridge in the UK. It's quite standard in uh, in academia, and particularly in physics, and even more particularly in uh, theoretical physics and the type of uh, research we do, to have many years of postdoctoral studies uh, between the end of your PhD to the point where you finally land with a, a more permanent position, which doesn't expire after two or, or three years. Um, so I did a few of those. Uh, it, it's it's to be honest. If you know that everything's going to be fine at the end of the day, they are very enjoyable. <laughs> it's just the uncertainty of it. So I, w- I was in um, Montreal in Canada at my uh, McGill for a year. It was great. The group was amazing, uh, and it's also. I mean, at that time, I thought it was amazing to be able to uh, just go from one place to another for a few years, visit a new environment. Uh, being with a new group of people, getting new ideas, all of that is lots of fun. It's just you know that you're going to be there on a contract. And at that, for that one, it was for a year, and I knew from the beginning um, that it would be a year. So before I even started my postdoc there, I had to apply for other positions because the way it works, at least in that field, is that you apply typically in the fall for a position that will start uh, the following uh, fall. So you start, you apply in, uh, I don't know, October, November, December for a job that you will then start in the next October or so. So I did a few of those things. Um, then I went to uh, the Permanent Institute for Theoretical Physics in um, Waterloo. Also, it was a joint uh, position with uh, McMaster in Hamilton, uh, which is also in Canada. I was there for three years. Uh, yeah, I've been more than three years. And then I was quite lucky that I got one of these assistant professorship positions in Switzerland, um, which is kind of funding positions. They fund you for uh, four years to have a assistant professorship position in a university 
uh, in Switzerland. And it's really a good opportunity to establish your group, get your career uh, started. All of that is great. The only thing is that it's it's a clocked position again. So this one was for four years. And, and they tell you, they've encouraged you to apply for other more permanent position as soon as you arrive, even before you arrive, uh, which I did. So funny enough, I was there two months before I got permanent position in uh, Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio, in the US. At that stage, people are very accommodating. Uh, they, they were, I mean, both teams were, were great. Uh, Case Western was great in allowing me to delay my start uh, so that I could stay at uh, Geneva University for two years uh, and enjoy a little bit of the position there. Also, uh, when I started in Geneva, you, the idea is to start your group. So you have PhD students coming, you have postdocs coming. Um, and so all of these people are coming from somewhere else. So there were people from Germany, from the UK, from different places. They came to Geneva to start a group with me. And if I tell them, well, <laughs> you're on your own now, I'm going to leave. Uh, it, I mean, you have to deal with, with that. I stayed there in Geneva for two years so I could collaborate with those people. We could make the transition happening more easily. And then one of my students came with me, um, Lavinia Heisenberg. She uh, came with me to uh, Case Western for a, a full year. And then she did kind of a degree, which was kind of um, joined between Case Western and Geneva University uh, in terms of time, uh, even though she graduated from Geneva University. But it's very much on a case-to-case -case basis. So with every single person, you have to, to set up um, a different process. I arrived at Case Western Reserve University um, as, a again, assistant professor position. So in principle, it sounds like it's the same name. The difference is that it's a what we call in the US a tenure track position. So um, as long as you're an assistant professor for the first, let's say, four, five, six years, something like that, typically there's a tenure clock of five or six years, um, you're not permanent. Uh, but you get reviewed after three years. Well, you get reviewed after a year, after three years. There's a tenure review after five or six years. And then um, they decide within the department, within the college, within the university, whether they're going to tenure you so that it's a, it's a, it's a job with no end. Um, if you're in academia, that's kind of the aspiration that you would have. Um, not everywhere in Europe there is this idea of tenure position. So what, now I, I'm at Imperial. It is a permanent position, uh, but it's not tenured in the sense that, uh, yeah, legally it's, it's different. But in practice, it's, it's the same. Alongside all that, Claudia has trained as a pilot and got through many of the stages for the European Space Agency's astronaut program. I always wanted to, to also to be an astronaut, like <laughs> most of the people doing science say. I mean, it's a dream. It's amazing, right? I, who wouldn't want to be an astronaut? As soon as I finished my PhD and I had a little bit more my, my life in my hands, I decided to do everything I could to uh, to increase my chances or to put me in as good a posi possible uh, position. And I was in Canada at that time. So one of the things which is amazing in Canada is the possibility to, to learn to fly. So I became a pilot in Canada. Uh, I did fly a lot, uh, particularly when I was in Waterloo. Um, I would wake up four in the morning, go uh, flying and then go to work. Before. <laughs> I'm also a scuba dive master. Um, oh, cool. 
I'm not an instructor, which would be someone that can give other people a diving degree, but I can help um, teach, teaching uh, scuba diving. Um, so lo- all of that, I mean, it's fun. It's, <laughs> mm. it's also an opportunity to, to do what you like and, and see. I mean, if you want to be an astronaut, it's this part of your life, which is not just academia, but it's really putting things in practice and putting yourself in uh, various type of situations. I think in 2008, they launched the new ESA, so the European Astronaut Selection. Um, and the selection itself lasted two years, I think, at least, at least maybe a year and a half. Uh, so it was a long process that went through many different um, levels of selection. Uh, so I went through quite a few of these levels, but at the end, uh, you know, I mean, at the end, everybody, <laughs> there, there's so many people applying and then it took six um, in the end. So um, there was a one of the final selection processes were a one week long medical testing and that I did in Toulouse. Uh, with all, so when you get to that stage, the other people who, who were there during that week uh, with me, they were all amazing. It's also such an experience. They all have their own life, their, their own adventures. They all did everything they could. Um, we should kind of share, share the, uh, the same dreams. So it's, uh, it, it, it was great. I mean, with some of them, I still have, keep in contact. It's, uh, it's kind of fun. Would you, would you apply again if it- so, I mean, right now, I think the reason I didn't get selected was because I was um, I had latent tuberculosis. And it doesn't mean that that's an issue, but it will show up again. Um, so it, it was a big it was a big period of my life. Uh, and, and I did invest myself a lot. It's not just something I mean, I, I talked with many people who I knew applied to the process and it's something they, they did uh, and they thought about it. But but I really I spent almost my whole time thinking about it, getting ready for it. I, I kind of wrote my own computer programs to train um, my eyes better. To, I, I mean, I was really <laughs> obsessed about it. And so when it fails, you know, it's it's time to move on as well. I'm, I'm happy with the way my life has turned out. If I thought in my heart that I could apply again and would have 0.1% chances of succeeding, I would do it. But but I I think the there's no chances of being selected. So unless the, the rules are changed and there's no reason why the rules would be changed. It's, it's like why, why take someone that has minimal risk of having latent tuberculosis versus someone else who doesn't? Why, why would they? Uh, we'll hear more from claudia later but obviously physics is not all about academia and i wanted to find out how things are in the world of the european space agency so i spoke to astrid Orr. i'm um, uh, working at the european space agency um, in the directorate of uh, human and robotic exploration and i am coordinating uh, experiments scientific experiments in physics in microgravity, so um, a lot of them are on the ISS, um, in microgravity or using the ISS as a research platform, so also Earth observation. And to reach microgravity, to obtain microgravity, we also have other types of uh, facilities, so one doesn't have to necessarily go to the International Space Station. So we we offer uh, drop tower uh, campaigns and parabolic flight campaigns, 
which of course um, allowed to, to access uh, a shorter duration of microgravity, but it still can be sufficient for, for certain types of investigations. So, so I, I enable, I help um, other scientists in, in Europe and outside of Europe to, to access uh, these research uh, programs. One of my uh, uh, favorite projects, ASIM, stands for uh, Atmosphere Space Interactions Monitor. It's an experiment which is now operating on the International Space Station. It's um, an Earth observation mission. Uh, and more precisely, it's observing the higher atmosphere and it's looking at thunderstorms from above. It is um, observing high-energy electric discharges which occur above the, the thunderstorms. So, uh, whereas lightning usually is within the thunderstorm or between the Earth and the thunderstorm cloud. So, we're interested in lightning that happens in the very high atmosphere and um, to understand the electric circuit of our atmosphere and and the, the nature of different types of phenomena, uh, which can be observed in the visible uh, or in um, UV, um, X-ray, and even gamma ray. In the optical domain, these um, phenomena are called transient uh, luminous events. Um, you might be familiar with the names sprites, elves, blue jets, and such. In the, in the high energy range, so... Um, X-ray, gamma ray. Um, we have the so-called terrestrial gamma ray flashes, and ASIM is able to to detect and measure all of these. And for the first time, doing it simultaneously and with very high sensitivity. You'd be forgiven for thinking from Astrid's name that she was always destined for the stars, but as far as she's concerned, her destiny might have been elsewhere. I grew up in Switzerland. I'm I'm Swiss. So when I was a kid, I, I had no idea what I was interested in. And um, when I came to secondary school, I decided I was interested in classical languages, so in Latin. I was a great fan of uh, Asterix and Obelix books, and I just wanted to understand the, uh, the Latin quotes that the pirates were always saying. And uh, so that was my motivation to go and study Latin in secondary school. I was doing a bit of science, but it didn't particularly interest me. But I found it very easy. I found math easy. When I was in my last year of secondary school, I was hanging around the school library and I f they had these new books on display and there was a book on astronomy. It had nice photos, so I uh, borrowed it for the weekend. Actually, I, I read it nonstop the whole weekend. I, I think I didn't sleep very much. I found it so fascinating that that kind of was um, the moment I decided I wanted to go into sciences. So the next year when I had to choose um, what I wanted to study at the university, I decided it would be science and physics. Um, I never regretted it. So I, I, I studied physics at the University of Geneva and I also did uh, a PhD uh, also in Geneva at the Geneva Observatory. I specialized in astrophysics for my PhD. One of my professors was uh, Professor Michel Mayor, uh, who obtained um, very recently the Nobel Prize for 
discovering uh, the first exoplanet. I had courses given <laughs> given by him, and uh, he, he was uh, one of the professors I, I really appreciated. I did not do my PhD work with him. I, I specialized in high-energy astrophysics. Um, after my PhD, I was trying to find a, a job as a physicist. I found out quickly one doesn't need astrophysicists for everyday life. Um, so if one wants to find a job, one has to be flexible and be willing to travel. I, I found a, a possibility to uh, join the European Space Agency as a research fellow in the astronomy astrophysics department. And I, I, joined, um, I joined ESA in 1996. I've pretty much been ever since 1996 here at ESA. Spent um, um, several years working in the astrophysics de department here at ESA, doing science operations for, for astrophysics missions in high energy astrophysics. And I, at the same time, I was um, pursuing my scientific research, uh, and I really appreciated this possibility that the European Space Agency was giving me to, to do the work and have a paid job and to continue um, uh, during part of my time to do scientific research and publications. And I did this until 2005, <clears throat> when my, my entire team was relocated to um, to another country. So I, I was working in the Netherlands here uh, at ESTEC, which is the largest site of, of the European Space Agency. And my team was relocated to a, a site uh, near Madrid. Uh, for personal and family reasons, I was not able to, to, to make the move to another country at that time. Uh, I was able to join... A, a team of physicists working in another part of the European Space Agency. So I came to my current job in 2005 in ESA's Directorate of uh, uh, Human and Robotic Exploration. Ever since then, I've been coordinating uh, uh, physical sciences experiments um, on our various platforms. Could you tell me what the best things are about being a the, physicist? The, the best thing about f being a physicist, in my view, is uh, to be able to attain an understanding of uh, the nature of our physical world and how it works. And, um, well, I, I mentioned before that uh, when I was a high school student, uh, I didn't know what I was interested in. I was I thought I was interested in literature and classical studies and... Um, and it was this book um, on astronomy which kind of opened my eyes and I thought, well, I want to know how it works. How does it all fit together? What, what is it? Where did it come from? Where will it go? Um, how do we relate to it? Physics has this really fundamental and basic way of, of understanding things. Uh, it's at the basis of everything and that, that's what I find so appealing. Of course, um, other disciplines of, of science are, are extremely important. Currently, of course, medical studies are, are of utmost importance and, and understanding human beings and, and their health, psychology and, and sociology are, are very important things. Physics is, for me, at the basis of everything. I find it also calming and to, to concentrate about in times of uncertainty, like, like now the virus spreading. I... I find it very 
calming for me to co concentrate on on questions of physics. It's uh, sometimes it sounds seems a bit abstract or remote, but they're very fundamental, and uh, it gives me a, a calm calm feeling. It's really nice to hear because my day job is being a lecturer. And I'm just writing a lecture about, cause I'm pre-recording a lecture these days, obviously, about writing about science. And one of the sections is, is about writing about different aspects of science. And I've just literally, just before we started this conversation, I was uh, preparing the bit about writing about physics and space physics and what an important role that plays for escapism for people who aren't even working in the field but to have that kind of role of escapism that physics provides for people and it's really nice to hear that it still provides that for well I, I specialized in astrophysics and um i know there are a lot there are a lot of well um there are a lot of uh, amateur astronomers out there and i find that um astronomy uh, is um one of the discipl scientific disciplines that can be done at, at very nicely at an amateur level um, and it's so that's what is so appealing about astronomy. I mean, it, you can do it scientifically, um, do astrophysics, but you can also be a, an amateur astronomer, whereas you cannot be an amateur medical doctor. I wouldn't suggest that. <laughs> or, <laughs> or an am amateur chemist. Um, I'm not quite sure about that, but you can be an amateur astronomer and it's wonderful. And uh, there, there, there are other cool things about being a physicist. When I was a student at the university, must have been first or second year, uh, one of my professors said, a physicist can do anything. And, um, well, you see, I still remember it. It was years ago. <laughs> and... Uh, I um, I also remembered it when I was looking for jobs, and it's true, physicists can do a lot. I mean, a lot of my colleagues went in, well, several of them went into computer programming, others went into engineering work, others went into uh, fine mechanical, fi fine mechanics, uh, some went into academia, all sorts of different things. Uh, uh, some went to working in banks, <laughs> all sorts of things. So um, a physicist can do anything. It's it's a good um, choice of studies, I think. And um, there are a variety of disciplines in the physical sciences. So you can be doing applied things, uh, theoretical. There's a whole variety out there, but they all use the same rigorous scientific approach, which um, I really value. More from Astrid at the European Space Agency later. One of my own personal favourite physics disciplines is radio astronomy. It's probably partly because of growing up not far from the shadow of the Lovell Telescope at Jodrell Bank Observatory in Cheshire, and probably partly because of Carl Sagan's contact novel. But radio astronomy has been in the news in recent weeks, and I caught up with one of the people behind a fascinating new discovery, Melanie johnson Hollett. Right now, I'm the director of the Murchison Widefield Array radio telescope in Australia. When I was a small child, my grandmother used to take me outside and show me the night sky, and I got very fascinated with that and decided at a young age that that was what I was going to do, so I was going to do astronomy. And as it turns out, pretty much everything Nana told me was wrong, but that's okay. Uh, <laughs> um, and I was very stubborn as a child. And so I kind of suffered through school to get to university to do physics. And I did a physics degree with a double major in physics, so theoretical and exper experimental physics. 
And then I did a mathematics degree in pure mathematics. And then I went on and, and did honours in astrophysics and a, and a PhD in radio astronomy. And after that, I uh, spent some time variously living in different parts of the world, working on the design and construction um, and governance of radio telescopes. So I, I never really planned to be a radio astronomer. I always thought I should be an optical astronomer because, you know, people want to make pretty pictures and so forth. And I had this misunderstanding that radio telescopes made horrible 8-bit colour maps, which were not very interesting. But that's not true. Radio telescopes make incredibly beautiful images. And so when I was... Uh, at the end of my honours degree, I had the opportunity to work at one of Australia's largest optical telescopes, the Anglo-Australian Observatory, and I went and worked there for three months. And at the end of that, I was offered two PhD projects. And one of them was in optical astronomy with a very eminent optical astronomer. And one of them was in radio astronomy with a very eminent radio astronomer. And I'd had such a bad time working at the AAO, no offence to the AAO, that I said, I don't want to do this optical astronomy thing. I don't know anything about radio, but I'll do that. Um, and so that's how I ended up as a radio astronomer. And then I ended up in this career where I was sort of, yeah, helping to build and design and run radio telescopes. The first radio telescope that I worked on was a project called LOFAR, so the Low Frequency Array, which is a radio telescope uh, based in the Netherlands, but it's an international uh, radio telescope spanning Europe. So at the time when I worked on it, I was the inaugural LOFAR fellow. And so that was before LOFAR had actually been constructed. So we were working on aspects of the design for LOFAR. And then I got involved in the Square Kilometre Array, which is a project that I spent many years on. Um, so the Square Kilometre Array is an ongoing international project to build the world's largest radio telescope. So it's, again, an international effort. The headquarters are actually in Jodrell Bank in the UK. Um, but the telescope will be built in two parts in uh, South Africa, in the Karoo, and um, in Australia, in the Murchison. And so I was, I worked on that project directly for a long time. I was actually a founding member of the board of directors of the SK organisation, which is a company by limited guarantee in the UK, which is the sort of vehicle that we used to start the project up. And I was on the board for six or seven years. And involved in various aspects from the governance to the science to the, the technological parts of, of the SKA. And at the same time, I, I got involved in the Murchison Widefield Array and became chair of the board, the international board. Again, the MWA is an international radio telescope, so it's a low frequency radio telescope. So I chaired the MWA board for four years and then they headhunted me to come and be director. So I've been director of the MWA for the last uh, two years. So I, I moved back to Australia to, to do that. And people may have read about you in the news recently. We've discovered the most energetic uh, outburst from a supermassive black hole ever seen. So in the history of the universe. So that was pretty cool. It has been variously described as the biggest explosion since the Big Bang. Yeah. So it's sort of a misnomer to say that the Big Bang was an explosion in the same sense. Um, but this, this is in the sense that people can think about it like an ongoing volcanic eruption, but with a ridiculous amount of energy. So we were looking at the Ophiuchus galaxy cluster, uh, which is not a very remarkable galaxy cluster, but it's, it's relatively nearby. And so what that is, is a collection of galaxies orbiting around uh, the same gravitational uh, point. So they've got the same gravitational well, we say embedded in a bunch of plasma, which is emitting uh, X-ray 
photons, which we can detect with an X-ray telescope. And then sitting in the very centre of all of that is a galaxy which hosts a supermassive black hole. And that supermassive black hole, as it turns out, is producing prodigious amounts of energy, which is being sent out into the universe in the form of highly relativistic particles and magnetic fields. And they were so large that they punched a hole uh, 15 times the size of our galaxy, the Milky Way, in the plasma uh, of the galaxy cluster. So a huge big cavity uh, was detected in the X-ray emission. And then with radio telescopes, we could see that it was filled with with radio emission, which is indicative of these outflows. So that's what we detected, which is cool. Yeah, it's incredibly cool, right? <laughs> but it, uh, just to get my try and picture it in my head, when you say it's, it's blown a hole in it, there's a cavity. Is that nothing? Is that literally just space? What is that? Um, well, I mean, it's, it's, it's literally like a bubble. So what's happened is that the supermassive black hole has material falling into it on an accretion disk. And once it gets past a threshold, some of that material uh, gets accelerated out. So you get accelerated particles of magnetic fields and they erupt perpendicular to the accretion disk and they push apart uh, the ambient medium, which is this hot X-ray emitting plasma that we find in the centre of galaxy clusters. And so what happens then is that the cavity is filled with the stuff that came out of the, well, not came out of the black hole exactly, but came from near the black hole. So it's not nothing. It's then filled with um, the electrons and magnetic fields that have, that have been emitted by the supermassive black hole or close to the supermassive black hole. So you see a bubble in the X-ray, a hole in the X-ray, and then you see it filled with radio emission from these electrons spiralling in that magnetic field, which produces radio emission. And that is 15, that bubble is 15 times the size of the Milky Way. Yes, it's 1.5 million light years in diameter. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's big. I mean, that, what? How, how has this not been seen before? Ah, well... That's an interesting question. So the reason that we haven't seen it before is because we have better and better telescopes to do this type of science. So, you know, we've been doing X-ray observations of galaxy clusters since the 80s, and we've been getting better and better telescopes to do that. So it's really difficult to make a, a sharp image with an X-ray telescope because X-ray photons are very energetic, and so it's hard to focus them. And so the Chandra X-ray telescope is one of... Uh, the best telescopes that we've ever had to image galaxy clusters because it can actually make reasonably good images. And so a previous team had actually looked at this cluster and seen this cavity and not seen anything in it. They, they looked at um, the existing radio information and they said, oh, there's nothing there. And so they discounted the possibility of this being produced by an AGN, so active galactic nuclei, so black hole outburst, because they said it's going to be too energetic. This would be five times bigger than the the nearest record holder that we have, so that's too big, so it won't be that. So one of the reasons we haven't seen the cavities before is because we didn't have good X-ray telescopes. But the reason that we couldn't then really understand what was happening was because we've only had really good, sensitive, low-frequency radio telescopes for the last decade. So historically, we've done radio astronomy at much higher frequencies. And this radio emission is, a, is what we call an old fossilised plasma and you can't really see it at high radio frequencies. You can only see it at low frequencies. So in looking with telescopes like the Murchison Widefield Array, you can actually start to see things that we've have been invisible, literally been invisible to us before. The previous X-ray team actually wrote a blog post for Chandra where they said they were very happy 
that uh, we'd gone back and redone this and shown that, in fact, it was from one of these outbursts that they'd discounted because, um, you know, that that made more more sense in a way, even though it makes the universe be a stranger place than we think it was previously or we thought it was previously. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? I mean, if if this is five times bigger than what we expected before, does this change the way we think about supermassive black holes? Yeah, it does. I mean, this is one of the questions that we have is that how, how energetic can these things be? And what's the threshold for producing these sort of cavities that we see in, in galaxy clusters? So we know about 50 of them. Uh, and this is certainly the largest one that we've ever seen. And as I said, the one that's required uh, the most amount of, of energy to produce. And so that sort of pushes the limits of, of how these things are fed and how big they can be. And so, yeah, it answers it. Well, it, it, pro- it poses a number of questions that we have yet to answer. Um, and hopefully with, again, the next generation of low frequency radio telescopes, we should be able to see more of these things. So, yeah, it's exciting. It opens up a new area to study in detail. And I think that this is a really nice example of why you need to do observations across different parts of the electromagnetic spectrum. So one of the cool things about astronomy is that we're looking at, you know, different parts of the electromagnetic spectrum and that that tells us different things about the physics. And so if you don't have radio plus X-ray plus other types of of telescopes, you often can't really see and understand what the universe is is doing. Yeah, it's really and and as you were saying, you know, like there's Australia, there's India. It's like a, it's kind of like a, it's a multinational operation with different types of radio astronomy. That's a lovely thing. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. In fact, the so the first author of Simona is Italian, but she works in the US. The second author, Maxim, is a Russian who works in the US. I, I'm an Australian who happens to be in Australia at the moment. But yeah, it, it's this very multinational discipline. And, and astronomy is like that. It really is. It's collaborative across the world, across wavelengths, across countries. It's fantastic. It turns out that sometimes our preconceived ideas about what physics or science might be can be wrong. When I was younger, I kind of had this conception of what radio astronomy or what any astronomy was, which was totally wrong. Like, I thought you spent all your day sitting behind a desk and looking at a computer screen or maybe doing some observations. And I was very sad because I wanted to travel the world. And what I didn't realise was that it's extraordinarily international. And so I thought pursuing my career as an astronomer would limit my ability to travel the world. But in fact, that's absolutely the reverse. And so I think probably the best thing is that astronomy has taken me around the world to see a ridiculous number of countries and get to experience cultures that I would never have otherwise experienced and live in places that I would never have otherwise lived in. So I think that's probably been the best thing about being astronomy in general. And as to being a radio astronomer, I think this particular moment in time, it's interesting to be a radio astronomer because we have all of these radio telescopes either being constructed and designed or being upgraded. And I had the very... uh, unique opportunity at a fairly young age to get to go on the board of directors of a project like the SKA. I was only 36, I think, when I went onto the SKA board and I got to work with the New Zealand government in that case because I was representing New Zealand on this mega sort of science project and see science diplomacy at a very high level uh, very early on. And so that was probably the best thing about being a radio astronomer for me. And physics, more widely? Yeah, well, doing physics as a woman uh, in the 90s was interesting. Um, So that's not a criticism of the actual discipline of physics itself, because I think it's 
you know, as a physicist, it's good to understand how the how the world works, how the universe works, and having scientific discipline, I think, is useful. But you know, as a sort of a sociological comment, I think that physics in the nineties was, yeah, a bit of a challenge. I guess it tests how tough you are. So yeah. That's interesting. I, got, I, I spoke to Jill Tarter about that, and she was saying exactly the same thing, that it, it tested how tough Yeah, and, and Jill is very tough. And she probably yeah. had it tougher than I did because she's 30 years older than I am. So I'm sure for her it was worse. But, you know, even going through in the 90s, it was still uh, difficult in a way that I don't think it is today. So I think there is improvement in that um aspect of of doing physics although occasionally you still run into things and you just sort of shake your head and go oh my god so yeah okay well we see them in politics too yeah (laughs) even at the top of society we see uh uh, this sort of thing going on any more challenges aside from from that i think academia is challenging in the way that it has a particular lifestyle which is hard to explain to anyone who's not an academic so Academia is an all-consuming lifestyle. So I'm sitting here talking to you at at quarter to eight in the evening, my time, having just come off a two-hour telecon uh, of of an astronomical journal, which I sit on on the editorial board of. And so my life is very rich and very privileged in the way that I get to travel the world and I get to do really cool things. But it's also difficult to explain to someone outside of academia that, you know, I have to spend many, many hours doing this sort of stuff and um, work-life balance is a challenge, I think. So when I meet people, they kind of sit there and they say to me, oh, you're so lucky, you're this, that, the other. And I think, yeah, but I spent my whole weekend working, um, not because I wanted to, but because it was it was necessary at this particular point in time. So, yeah. I mentioned that Professor Claudia Duram had won several awards in her career so far, and one of them was the Blavatnik Award for Young Scientists in 2020. And she was also one of the UK finalists for the same award in 2018 for revitalising the theory of massive gravity. The theory, by Claudia Duram, Gregory Gabadadzi and Andrew Tolley, suggests that if gravitons had mass, then there'd be no need for dark energy. I met up with Claudia Duram and Andrew Tolley at Imperial College London, before the coronavirus lockdown. You you think there is uh, dark energy because you assume the laws of general relativity to describe what's going on, and then you need to add something there to explain the acceleration of the universe. Something people have been exploring for years is simply to say, what what if instead um, gravity wasn't behaving the way you thought uh, on those very large distances? Because we... We have very good proof of how gravity behaves on different distances, but not on those large distances. And when I mean distances, that's not really what what I mean. It's more on scales. It doesn't need to be space distances. It's also on time scales. So because the universe is getting quite old now, maybe the way gravity behaves on large scale is is different. Um, And that could explain why you don't need necessarily to have dark energy, maybe it would be natural within a modification of gravity to have an accelerated expansion on the universe. Mm. Maybe we're just starting to see now that the universe expansion is accelerating because we're just starting to probe a regime, an uncharted regime of gravity, as wasn't probed before. The universe, when it was younger, was denser. It was 
gravity was behaving on different scales, and now it's entering a new regime where it's simply behaving differently. Whichever way you want to phrase this question, ultimately it always corresponds to making gravity weaker on large distances. And if you think just in the, just in the forces that we know, for the electromagnetic force, we, we hear a lot about it, we probe, a lot, we, probe we see light, mm. and we're experiencing the weak force far less because it's weak. The reason it's weak is because it has a mass. The, the carrier of the weak force, the W and the Z boson, at the level of fundamental particles, they carry a mass. And so the range of the force they can carry is similar to the, the inverse of the mass. Is with the Compton wavelength for the... For the mass. That's right. So you can use this known phenomenon within physics that is very well, very, very well probed, very well understood, and no problem whatsoever there. You can tr- try to use this intuition to gravity and say, well, what if the graviton was massive after all? So in Einstein's theory of general relativity, it's a purely massless particle, so it would have an infinite range. You have no stop to it. Whereas you could have, in principle, a small mass, a tiny mass, and maybe the size of the universe today is just entering the quantum wavelength of this mass. So it's just starting to probe a weakening of gravity on large cosmological scales. Mm-hmm. So you can phrase the question in a different way, but ultimately it always comes down to asking for gravity to be weaker and then effectively for the graviton to be massive, either explicitly or effectively in one way or another. But it's been known throughout the past century that it's very tricky to simply give a mass to the graviton. It's possible for spin one, like the W and Z bosons, that's kind of easy to do. But for gravity, it's very hard just because of the level of interactions it it needs to have. Just like gravity, the theory of gravity itself took a long time, general relativity took a long time to write down. I mean, from Newton to general relativity, there's a lot of work that needed to be done. Um, So the the structure of the interactions are very subtle. And once you start giving it a mass, you kind of need to start all over again. Think of how how you can do this in a consistent way that preserves the beauty of general relativity without spoiling everything. Um, So the theory we have is exactly that understanding how to give a mass to the graviton uh, while making it a consistent, healthy theory, which is not complete nonsense. Uh, So throughout the past century, there's been a lot of work trying to do that just as a proof of principle in the first place. And every time people tried, and we tried in the past as well, we always came down to the same type of obstacle. We're related to instabilities. Um, And so the theory we have, uh, so Andrew... Gregory Gabadazzi and myself, is the first time we were able to kind of architecturally design the interactions such that the theory was stable. There is a possibility now. Uh, so there's a, there's a framework, there's a playground in which we can explore this option uh, before that wasn't even possible. So, so now we can ask the question, what if gravity really was weaker because of the graviton mass? Um, what would it mean for cosmology? Uh, it would be quite natural for cosmology to behave quite differently on cosmological scales in a way that would, would just start observing right now. So, so one of the things is indeed it makes gravity weaker. Um, so that means that what you would have thought that the gravitational attraction at large distances would make the expansion slow down, that's no longer true. It'd be quite natural to have maybe some 
what we call self-acceleration, that just from the, from the graviton itself, can, part of it can condensate uh, and its own energy can lead to the acceleration of the universe in, mm. a, in a kind of natural way. That, so it's that, like the dark, in that picture, dark energy is a natural fluid built out of spin two, uh, built out of the graviton itself um, as a condensate, it condenses which you can't do in general relativity because there the graviton is massless and you can never get massless things to condense because they're always traveling at the speed of light. So you can't slow them down in order to get them to condense. The gravity itself could condense and the observations are just the observation of gravity itself, the manifestation of gravity that is condensing and that's the way it affects the expansion of the universe. You have found a way of testing, showing, exploring whether... Gravity, gravitons have mass. All of the above. (laughs) (laughs) So you've put this theory out. It's in Mm -hmm. the academic literature. Mm -hmm. What do people say? Now or or when it came out? (laughs) Both. (laughs) You want the the polite version? (laughs) No, no, no. Cosmology is a famously um, aggressive field. It's it's a polite way to describe it. (laughs) I mean, it was when it was first out. A lot of people had various opinions, and some people have very strong opinions just because, I mean, it, and it, it has to be like that. If it's something a bit different, and, and if it goes against yeah. what has been understood, um, there needs to be some, uh, um, what is it, blockage. Mm-hmm. If there wasn't, then we would go anywhere all the time. There is a strong consensus. The way people learn general relativity as well is, uh, is different than the way they learn to the standard model because the standard model was recently, only very recently developed in a sense. I mean, well, the 1970s, we can call that recent, but it was recognised at the time they were discovering new particles all the time and so there was, it wasn't clear what the roles were and so to some extent it's, it's a bit more ugly. Um, you had to... Uh, specially tune the set of laws in order to see what we exactly see. Whereas general relativity, as developed by Einstein's sort of beautiful mathematical framework that is elegant in its own right, separate from its, its physical relevance. And we're taught it in that way, that this, this is this refined, beautiful thing that has to be like that because it's so elegant. And then it's very difficult for people to separate themselves from that and think that actually it might be a little bit more complicated because what you're doing is then you're taking something that's nice and elegant and making it a little bit uh, dirtier in a sense. Um, but of course physics doesn't care if it's if, it, if you're, as you see it right now, is elegant. It may be, I mean, we all have this prejudice that the fundamental laws are elegant, but we don't mean the, uh, the laws as we see it right now. That's sort of like the final outcome. But what, we, what we're working with is in general, we're only work with approximate descriptions. And the standard model is expected to only be approximate. And so it's got some ugly elements. But we don't get too upset about that. Um, and so, to some extent, you know, massive gravity also it has some ugly elements. And we've, we certainly fully recognize that it's not as elegant as general relativity. But um, the world is its connection with experiment and do you predict the right observations? It's the right criteria. I think partly because of that then people, a lot of people their automatic reaction is, oh this is just crazy, why would we why would we spoil this elegant structure 
or or their prejudice is that uh, it's just not possible because this is how the rules are supposed. To, this is how you know Einstein told us the rules. It's all about curvature of space time, and it has to go like this. Um, Sorry, just to go back slightly. If when people are uh, being abusive, are you talking about other scientists being abusive? Oh yes, yes, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Really? Yeah. And does that? How does that feel when that happens? Then I mean, do you just laugh it off, or is? And by now, yes. Now, by now, we we laugh it off. But no, but it is it is insulting. Yeah. Well, I think when we started doing this, we were postdocs. We were quite junior, actually. So then I think you know, often it was it's like more senior people uh, criticizing what you do. Um, then it's much harder to take. Not so much because you believe them, because they're more senior, they think they're right. You know, you know, often you know you're right about something or what, what it is you're doing. It's more that, of course, that does have an effect on your career. Right? Yeah. I mean, there, there are cases where we hear, okay, we're going to have an effect on your career. Really? If, if you continue publishing this, we're going to make sure you don't, <laughs> you don't continue in the field. Uh, it's a minority overall, but, but some people... Mm, make a lot of noise. Are there people who could have an impact on your career? Yes, yes. I mean, a lot is based on, in our field, a lot is based on thing, what more senior people think. So if you go for a job interview, at that place, they have a strong opinion of a senior person who tells them that what you do is bad, then yes, you will have a, then you won't get a position in that place. Back at the European Space Agency, Astrid Orr had some top tips for those of you who are studying physics or looking to do so. Uh, what I found very helpful was when I was a student and also a, a junior scientist was to identify somebody who would be my mentor. So it was sometimes the professor or senior colleague, and they didn't even always know that they were my mentor, but typically it would be somebody with whom I could um, communicate well and who who on their own would give me some advice or act as a role model. And throughout my career, a few such people, uh, I really appreciate um, their their guidance. Yeah, when you're a student, of course, uh, at a certain point, you, you need to specialize in some topics. Or if you're a student physicist at the university, you'll, you'll have to choose a specialization. Um, but do keep your mind open to other disciplines in the physical sciences. So go to seminars in other branches of physics or... Um, if you're already working as a as a physicist um, researcher, maybe try to go to a, a conference on on another in another discipline of physics. Keep your mind open. It, it's easy to to get super specialized and refreshing to see uh, other disciplines. Maybe at first you think, oh, it's so boring. Uh, how could anybody be interested in this? But then force yourself to to be open minded and. And then you'll see that they're struggling with the same types of um, questions, with different approaches, and it's enriching. There was um, advice that was given to me long ago by uh, a lady astrophysicist who came from Australia. I-, I was trying to find a PhD position, and I was contemplating going to another town. And Although there were opportunities where I was, uh, I thought, no, I need to go away and do my PhD somewhere else, far away. It depends on the individual circumstances. But doing a PhD is long and tough. So it can be an advantage to also choose to stay close to your to your loved ones, so your family, your friends, who will be giving you uh, support during those these long and tough years of your PhD. So it's an individual choice, but um, something to take into account, I think. 
and I'm saying this one as a woman, still not as easy for women to uh, combine uh, family and career or family and studies, that's even more uh, difficult. I chose to do what I found interesting and I didn't listen to critics. And I assure you, I had a lot of critical voices when I was a young woman trying to study physics. At a certain moment, I was the only woman in my class. I had professors who had never had a woman before in their class. So really strange situations, but I just didn't care. And I just went on. I thought, this is what I find interesting and I'll do it. Melanie Johnson-Hollett agrees. Oh yeah, I have two rules that I live by now. Um, so the the first one is that the rules don't apply, which is a strange rule to live by. But by what I mean is people frame the world for you and they tell you, these are your opportunities. These are the paths you can take. And that is very rarely the totality of the paths you can take. So there are often more opportunities than you have been led to believe. And it's important to realise when something is an actual rule that you have to stick by and when something's not, and you can break it and do something different. Um, And the other thing that I try and live by is fail quickly. So if something isn't working for you, don't persist. So you, you can tell in your heart when something isn't working for you or it's not the right path for you or whatever. There's no point continuing down paths that are unsatisfying, life's short. So fail quickly and move on and do something else. So those, those are the two. And this is what has led me to, a, to the career that I've had is that I've kind of, certainly the rules don't apply where people have said, oh, you can't do that. I'm thinking, well, yes, I can. It's not illegal. I can do that. And so I would go and do things which other people would think were preposterous or risky or, um, you know, strange, but were perfectly allowable and then led me to opportunities that I would not have otherwise had. So, yeah. So it takes toughness, determination and passion. Here's Claudia de Ram again. I think it has to come from you. It really has to come from from your heart. It, it, it so, so it cannot just be a pragmatic decision and, and it's not something you can construct as well as you think it is. When I Often when I discuss about my career, it seems like pieces of Legos, right, that you put on top of each other and you and you build it up and that's kind of easy and, and nothing can fall down. <laughs> but but it's, it, it's never really like that. It's, it's never like that. So I think you really go for what you like for for what you enjoy doing you you need to have the passion you need to have the fire within yourself and um, and then hopefully the rest follows um as opposed to to do something for for the sake of uh, what you think the outcome would be i hope you've enjoyed this episode of the physics world stories podcast if you'd like to get some more tips and stories behind people's careers then you can get the march edition of the physics world magazine which is focused on careers in physics you'll also find several of those stories on the Physics World website, physicsworld.com. And while in this podcast we did concentrate on cosmology and astrophysics, which I make no apology for, because, as discussed, I think we all need a bit of escapism at the moment. There are physicists from other areas of physics and, of course, industry in those stories in the Physics World magazine and on the website. And for our next episode, you might be able to help me because I'd like to explore how the coronavirus is affecting physics and the work of physics researchers around the world. 
If you have any stories you'd like to share, any concerns you'd like to talk about, or anything you think might be interesting for the podcast, do get in touch by sending an email to physics.world at iopublishing.org. If you can't write that down right now, then you'll find all the details on the Physics World website, physicsworld.com. And thank you very much for listening. Physics World.